Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today I'm joined by Andy Johnson. How's it going, Andy? Oh, it's going swell. Just another day in paradise. What a, we had a great weekend, uh, Labor Day weekend of golf with the Solheim Cup, and uh, you know, just ready to talk about two uh, wonderful hidden gems in uh, Michigan with you. Are you still in Michigan? No, no. You've you've finally come back. <laughs> Mentally, I I hope to think that I've stayed in, in northern Michigan, but I uh, I'm afraid that all of my hopes and dreams of keeping that mental state have come crashing down. You know, on this Tuesday, as I've really gotten back in the saddle with work and uh, and uh, just you know, I took the garbage out last night and I realized that it, you know things are different. Yep, yep, back home. All right. So first, our sponsor for this episode is Zero Restriction. Zero Restriction is not only a fried egg sponsor, they were also the official outerwear for Team USA at the Solheim Cup. It is not Zero Restriction's fault that Team USA lost the Solheim Cup. Um, they, they certainly were well-dressed and, and I'm sure comfortable. In any that'd case- be, That'd be great if the captains just started like putting down like the- they <laughs> The sponsors. Blame, blame, you know, it's our outerwear's fault that yeah. we didn't win. Like everybody wants to talk about team chemistry and my pairings, but it was all the outerwear. It definitely wouldn't have been the outerwear because they make great stuff. They do make great stuff. What, what's your favorite zero restriction piece right now? I just got the champ hoodie. I'm a big fan of that. That's their new bestseller. Um, but, you know, if, if you want to go a little bit more back to the, the basics, like their vests are amazing and they have all different levels. They have, you know, they have, from a cost standpoint and the vest is essential as we head into fall. And I like all of them. Some of them are lighter. If you live in the South, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't need a vest. Get their lightest weight vest and it's going to do wonders. Like on those like kind of crisp mornings, it's like actually perfect. It doesn't feel like much, but then you put it on and you wear it and you're like, this is exactly what I need. Um, and then if you if you live in a place with real winter, like, you know, Chicago, <laughs> you get a, get a puffier vest, you know, get something with a little bit more sustenance. And uh, they have all different ranges of them. And uh, I think the vests are great. Yeah, I can confirm I have a zero restriction vest. It is really fantastic and versatile. It, it deals with all sorts of weather here in Oregon, including fake winter and fake fall and, and the rest of the fake seasons that we have here. ZeroRestriction.com is where you can get all of this great outerwear. The code that you can use is TFE25, TFE25 at ZeroRestriction.com. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So, Andy, uh, we're going to talk about mainly a couple of great affordable public golf courses in Michigan in this episode. But we, we thought we'd first say a few words about the Solheim Cup, which uh, we just watched over this past weekend. Uh, what are some big takeaways you had from the Solheim Cup? Women's golf, I think, had a had a bit of a moment this weekend, obviously. 
they had their premier event at a great golf course, Inverness, and they went up against obviously the tour championship and, and whether or not the, the numbers will, will bear it out. You know, the social media definitely was an indicator that the Solheim cup was the event to watch this weekend. First and foremost, that'll be my big takeaway. You know, things such as, how do you pronounce his name? Niall Haran, the One Direction guy with 30 million followers tweeting about it. You no know, idea, to... but I, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but there's no doubt in my mind that for people under 30, under 25 years old, he is the most famous amateur golfer in the world. Yeah. And like him tweeting about the Solheim Cup, not not the tour championship, you know, not men's golf, women's golf was such a big deal, like just like things like that anecdotally, as well as like the dominant social discussion this weekend, you know, just like an NFL Sunday where there's a dominant social discussion, one storyline, it might be your team, it might be a player on your team, it might be, you know, your rival's team. There's always one dominant, like the dominant story this weekend was the Solheim Cup, and that's just tremendous for women's golf. And it shows like when you put together a team competition, team competitions are far and few between, you know, I think like one of the natural reactions is we need more team competitions. Like one of the things that makes teams competitions so popular is the scarcity of them. Um, So I don't want to flood it with, but I think there's room for more of them, but we have to be very picky and choosy on how we cultivate these ideas. And we don't need all of a sudden 50 weeks of team competitions, right? No, well, I, it, it wouldn't be as special anymore. I mean, part part of what's great about the Solheim Cup, the Ryder Cup, is that you know they only come around every couple of years, and uh, you have time to miss it. Unlike what happens with PGA Tour golf, when you don't have any time to to miss it and yearn for it. I think there are enough team competitions out there right now. I mean, we've got the Presidents Cup, the Ryder Cup, the Solheim Cup, the Curtis Cup, the Walker Cup, the NCAA's. Even the PGA Cup or or the Eurasia Cup, if it ever comes back, I'm not sure what's going on with that right now. But the problem is we don't cover them enough. They aren't really on TV except for the ones at the professional level. The Walker Cup is barely on TV in the U.S. when it's overseas. It got pretty good television coverage this year, as did the Curtis Cup. But I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to just see more emphasis on the team match play tournaments that we have, because those have tradition. Those have relevance to the players who participate in them. And I think that just we need to cultivate those instead of thinking about adding more, because you could get to the point, as you say, where, you know, all of a sudden we have too many and and that would that would be too bad as well. You make a great point about history and tradition, and that matters. And, And the Solheim Cup is a younger event. So I think that's like this is going to be a big jumping off point. I think I saw early in the week and I, I, I apologize to whoever wrote this, but they they made a comparison of this Solheim Cup and what it could be to the Ryder Cup's Kiowa moment when like that war by the shore. And I think like to a certain extent, that, that was a pre-tournament prediction. It somewhat came true with uh, with this Solheim Cup where it really elevated the women's game to a different level than we typically see it. I agree. But but what do you think it was about this particular Solheim Cup that elevated it to that level? I think the coverage was great. Like yeah. there was a lot of it. It totally. was substantial. We could watch everything, which is, you know, being able, like I would have loved to see it on NBC more than it was. But the reality is like the NBC is going to show the tour championship because they have a 
whatever billion dollar rights deal with them. But the uh, I think the coverage was number one. I think the golf course played into it. Having it at a golf course that's hosted numerous major championship men's major championships was a big deal. Um, you know, obviously the fans being there, but but I think that's what elevated it. And then there was great play. the 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 final important thing was that the players delivered, and there was exemplary play, and and people saw just how talented, how good so many of these women are. Yeah, it was great to see Inverness Club. It was great to see approach shots into those greens that weren't necessarily falling out of the sky, right? Yeah. You know, obviously they weren't running them up like you would on a Lynx course necessarily, but you saw a variety of trajectories going into these greens, which made it really interesting for me as a viewer to to watch this tournament because, you know, it's team match play. You get to see a lot of shots. That's one of the wonderful things about the match play format, you tend to see more shots covered on TV than you do when it's stroke play and, and the broadcast can kind of get into this pattern of just showing putts. So we saw some delightful approaches into these greens, kind of bouncing over bunkers, running up, using different contours on the green. Um, but just, you know, there was a feeling that this was a major tournament. You know, the the fact that it was at Inverness, the fact that this club has a storied history that it's hosted a bunch of uh, men's major championships, I thought gave this Solheim Cup a real weight. I, I do think that the venue was crucial here, and I hope that that's part of the lesson that the organizers of the Solheim Cup learned from this past weekend. Yeah, yeah. I, I The venue was great. Uh, one of the things, just real quickly, about the venue that I enjoyed, and I don't know if this is a women's game thing or if it was Andrew Green's work because we haven't seen like a men's major out there or a men's tournament out there but like the penalty that those bunkers inflicted was really delightful like mm -hmm. they you get up near and I think this is like just anecdotally from me playing it I feel like those bunkers are dead you know if you hit it into there and it gets anywhere near the face you are you're not probably getting home and we saw that with the women this week where like finding bunkers had a monumental impact especially the fairway bunkers you know it's just something that we don't see week in week out on the pga tour very much right um where like it was it inflicted a penalty and obviously i think that's one of the the beauties of match play is where each hole feels so important you know and there's like a weight to the hole and losing ground, like it feels like it could just slip away. And then certain players you you just don't want to get down to. And, and they, you could see them just kind of put the put more and more pressure on them. And, and finding a bunker was this catastrophic thing. Like all of a sudden, oh, I'm not going to make par if I find this bunker. Like we saw it on the, on the 18th, which is the ninth hole with those bunkers on the right. Which I didn't understand how poor the driving was on the ninth or the 18th hole. It's like a very easy driving hole. So the was, 18th hole for the Solheim Cup, which is the ninth hole for members. Yeah. I don't know. I find I find that to be a tricky driving hole. I guess there's a lot of space out there. But, you know, when you're standing on that tee, it's a little bit hard to tell where you're supposed to hit the ball. Uh, it's maybe true. For me, at least. Maybe you would expect more from a player who has already mapped out the course. I just couldn't believe how many people were hitting it right. Yeah. And and us like there's nothing good right, but there's all the room in the world left. And and we and we saw those bunkers that you were talking about really come into play there where, you know, they're in fairway bunkers and a lot of times we saw the players kind of uh, pitching out. 
which we just don't see that often. We see nah. approach a lot of approach shots uh, on the PGA Tour and the LPGA Tour. We see players hitting approach shots from bunkers. But uh, yeah, I believe that Green did build up those lips of those bunkers substantially and gave them that kind of uh, raised up angular appearance. And that's not just an aesthetic thing. It's also functional in, in the sense that it exacts a real penalty if you end up in the wrong place in those bunkers. It seemed also like the the other thing was when they missed greenside. I felt like the recovery from those was so tough when you were short sided. Yeah, you know, a lot of bunker shots you saw if you, if they didn't have a lot of it was like well, like if they keep it, you know, fifteen feet, it, it was a great shot, and that probably has something to do with the old school sloping greens, like greens with substantial slope. Yeah, and and the external contours on those greens, right? There's a lot of uh severe contours on the edges of those greens and often when you're playing out of a bunker your recovery is going to land on a downslope and kind of propel away right and you're just not going to have much of a chance to get it close did you find yourself watching the golf differently after your podcast with joseph lamagna last week uh, and and analyzing pairings and and different plays a little bit differently. Yeah, so we we had Joseph Lamagna on the pod uh, last week talking about the strategy of team match play and how captains really should be thinking through how they make their pairings. And and certainly, I was looking at the pairings that were made and the decisions that were made by the captains with through a slightly more critical lens. And uh, you know, one of the main takeaways from what Joseph told me was that players with similar skill sets really shouldn't be paired together. You know, you, you, you want people with complementary skill sets, especially if, you know, you're pairing together two relatively short players and two relatively long players. What, what you really want to do is spread those players out and make sure that, you know, they don't get caught with a, a lack in a certain, with a, with an absence of a, of a certain skill area in a single pairing. And that's especially important in alternate shot to my mind, I didn't see too many pairings that were glaring to me where I was like, nah, that doesn't seem like a good decision. Maybe putting the Corda sisters together actually wasn't great because both of them are among the longest players on the LPGA tour. Maybe they should have been distributed more through the American team. But one thing that I did notice when I was just considering the relative skills of the players on the American team and on the European team is that Team Europe had a lot of long hitters. Yeah. Right? You would have just assume maybe this is a an it's assumption. A men's, it's a men's take that you would you exactly Americans are longer because men American men are the longest hitter. And 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 there's also a, a kind of sloppiness like European players just uh, learn the game differently and they're more tactical, blah blah blah. It's just nonsense. But the European team had a lot of long hitters on it. I mean, Lexi Thompson was is the longest hitter out there, but there were a bunch of Team Europe players who are in the kind of teens and 20s of the LPGA distance ranks, and they really didn't have many short players. Anna Nordquist was the lowest ranked player on Team Europe in, in terms of distance. And so, uh, whereas the American team had had a few short players who, who had great other skills as well. But um, I think that the course prized a little bit of length and, and I think that Europe had an advantage there. One, one perfect example of like a, a data driven pairing that Joseph probably would have been proud of was the Leona McGuire Mel Reed pairing 
where Mel Reed, obviously a long player, a shaky putter, and you put her put her with one of your shortest hitters, Leona McGuire, who's like 80th in in a distance off the tee, and one of the best, very very best putters in the world. So all of a sudden, you you melded that skill gap, and I think that's one of the things. Like if I see it with our our tournaments, uh, you, you know, we we have an all at our events we have alternate shot at every event, and it's like what you see is they're like compliments from like teams that do well. Like even if it's a high handicap, if they have like a, you know, a high handicap, low handicap pairing, they've got like a really good shot at playing pretty well, like above expectation. And then you sometimes see these two high handicaps work really well together. And then you see them, maybe they make it into our shootout and it's like, Oh, one of them's really long, yeah, you know, and that, that really helps, you know? So a complimentary skills in an alternate shot is like such an important thing and it, to understand it beyond data is to play it. And when you play, like there are people that your game just works really well with an alternate shot. And typically those are players that play significantly different than you. I think one other thing, I think there, you know, obviously like this might be simplistic, but the, the, one of the lures of, of the team events is that there is a very clear winner and a loser. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, like the professional events, there's obviously a winner. But then, like, if you finish eighth, you don't necessarily, you say good week, like great week, you know, good playing. There's a gray area between winner and loser, right? Mm-hmm. And with the team events, the, the finality of it's over and one team won and one team lost. Yeah. I think that adds to the, the viewing because you, you, you know that it's over. Yeah. Th- there are clear stakes in a team match play tournament. This is something I thought about throughout the week. Just the the consistency of the stakes. There's there's real substance to which team wins, obviously. And every match feels important. From the first day through the third day, every match feels like it has big consequences. And yet at the same time, late on Monday afternoon, even though Europe was playing way better in a lot of ways than the US team, even though Europe didn't really relinquish its lead throughout the entire tournament, it felt like things could turn around. It felt like, you know, this could all flip if a few matches go the U.S.'s way. There was like that flickering hope, but it was just like, it was so, it was so absurd. All the things that needed to happen. It was an uphill battle for sure. I I like, cause like (laughs) I, I thought it was over and then I was like, it's over. And then I was like, well, wait a second. And then I thought about it. And then by the time like it, it flipped, it was like, I realized like, you know how ridiculous it was to think that the Americans still had a chance. It's That's like, what they it needed, seems like... like in retrospect. But listen, I mean, if a couple of matches flipped, yeah. then, then it could have been, you know, and that would have been one of the greatest comebacks that we can remember. And so there's always that little potential hope. You never know. Yeah. It's the hope that kills you. <laughs> um, well, we should probably move on to talking about these, uh, these yeah, golf this courses. was longer than we expected. Yeah, this was way longer. But uh, the courses that we're going to discuss are Champion Hill and Pinecroft in Michigan. I think the overall topic that we're discussing here, right, the concept we're talking about is how affordable golf can work as a family business. And and we're using these courses of as an example of, of how that can function. So uh, Champion Hill and Pinecroft are in northern Michigan or northern lower Michigan, I guess I should say. Um, I don't want to offend the people on the Upper Peninsula. Uh, These courses are owned by the same family and they're 
they're pretty close to Traverse City and really close to Crystal Downs, uh, which is the yeah. famous Alistair McKenzie course. Close Basically, to Arca- just, Arcadia Bluffs too. They're 15 minutes from Arcadia Bluffs for sure. So this is these are definitely courses to go to if you're going to take a trip to Arcadia Bluffs. They're family owned, as I said. They're affordable. They're well designed. They're they're basically examples of these public golf unicorns that we only occasionally run across in America. I think the first of them that you saw was Champion Hill, right? Yeah. So I saw Champion Hill a number of years ago. It was one of those. I was in the area. I had like three hours to kill. I went out there and saw and saw it, and it was I. It blew my mind. It was the middle of the day, though. I didn't have my camera with me. I I took some, you know, shoddy drone and it was just something in my mind. I always was like, well, I need to get back there and and do a proper proper fried egg uh look see at it because it's an incredible place and this was the second golf course that they built. You know, we'll get into the story, but these are people that that weren't serious golfers that built this golf course. They were farmers. And it's just an amazing thing when you stumble across a piece of amateur architecture and it, it blows your mind at how good it is. And uh, I think they're, they're few and far between, uh, like you discussed, like another example would be the Aiken Golf Club down in Aiken, which we've done pieces on. But these guys did everything right. And, uh, you know, this time around, I got to play Pinecroft, too, which was their first design. And it opened in the early 90s. It's just a wonderful ar- example of architecture. I couldn't believe, like, I was expecting it to be, like, a little bit worse than Champion Hill, like, in terms of, like, the architectural stuff. But, like, in the end, I actually kind of, the more I think about it, I think it was more, it's more sophisticated oh, wow. from an architecture standpoint. And what they accomplished there than Champion Hill is, even though Champion Hill is a better golf course, mm-hmm. but what they did at Pinecroft is truly unbelievable in terms of how it's routed. The The layout is like amazing. And then like they built a lot of very wide range of greens, you know, down to you, you look back on the round. It's like, God, they're par threes. They have a short, a long a medium and two medium par threes. They have like great variety. They didn't just build 200 yard par threes on that course. And you, the routing is incredible because it's situated on this, this side hill. This is Pinecroft. They're both situated on hills, but it's on this pine on this, on this hill that overlooks Beulah, uh, Michigan and Crystal Lake, which is one of the most beautiful lakes in, in the country. And it's a very severe hill. But you go down the hill and you play the front nine and it kind of winds around and comes back up. Very similar to a Perry Maxwell routing. 10, you tee off right next to one. You go back down the hill and then it comes up for the final four holes, which have this dramatic views of Crystal Lake on the flat ground. And you just realize it's like, God, like so many people would have screwed this routing up and they (laughs) nailed it. Yeah. Like they absolutely nailed it. And it's like, this is not an easy place to lay out a golf course because of the severity of the land. And this was the first try of an untrained architect. Mm -hmm. And that's the amazing thing about it. And then you go to champion Hill and the, the routing, you know, they did some, you can tell that they, they built bigger greens, you know, and you know, the routing's a little clunkier, I think, you know, it wasn't an easy place to route a golf course. There's a couple tough walks uh, on the front nine. The routing's a little clunkier. The land is absolutely jaw-dropping. Like, you know, Arcadia Bluffs has better views. The sight of being on the lake at Arcadia is better. 
But the land for golf, if you're purely looking at it from a golf standpoint, the land at at, uh, Champion Hill just blows it out of the water and blows almost anywhere out of the water in the country. So that golf course, and then you see all the par threes are like 200 yards. So you think, oh, like this is where somebody said you need longer par threes. Like you could start to see maybe where public, public feedback crept into their design thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and made it not as good, which is the, yeah. Well, so, if so, you go there, just play different tees for the par threes and make them varied. And then all of a sudden they aren't all 200 plus yards. Now, uh, to be clear, the peak 18 hole walking rate at both of these courses is $45. Yes. Um, you were making a comparison to Arcadia Bluffs and the rates at Arcadia Bluffs are, are, are quite a bit higher to, uh, to say the least. So, um, these are, these are pretty special golf courses. You know, Champion Hill is a stunning looking golf course. It comes across well on social media. You posted some pictures on Twitter and Instagram a few days ago that, that people really enjoyed. Can you paint a picture of this golf course for people? What does it look like? Just in general. So you, you're at the highest point in Benzie County, which is the county that it's in. So you're you're up high on this very dramatic piece of land. There are very few trees. It's it's tumbling terrain. You know, you t- you kind of drive up this road and it's really the only thing around. It's got some really fun short par fours. It's it's one of those golf courses like it doesn't really matter what the greens are because the land is so good. It's such a, you know, you have to hit shots and different shots that you're not used to so much to get to the greens. And then they have some very clever greens. I think if if you were going to point to where Champion Hill falls a little short, it'd be like the greens aren't quite as clever as the Pinecroft greens. They're bigger, but they have less going on in them. And, you know, the the land's just, it's just stunning land. Like, I mean, you think about a few of the holes out there. The second ha- plays up to this wonderful like peninsula like green that's on the point of the property and it's just a it's a stunning hole and then you know right after that three and four three is a short par four that plays up a hill that's blind over it over a ridge it's it, it's a really cool hole and then four you're up on this high point and you're looking down and you know you look down and you're like is this is this Real, did I pay $45 to play this place? You're like cackling to yourself yeah. because it's just like, wow. Like, the, you know, you've got this, you're you're playing this downhill par four, long par four with a ridge that kind of cuts along. It, I mean, it's just the only way really to properly describe it is to go see it. You're just wowed by where the, that this land exists, you know, for golf. So these are pretty unique golf courses, but they do represent a certain model of affordable golf that is different from the model of affordable golf that we talk about the most, which is municipal golf, government-owned properties. This is a family business, basically, these two courses together. And the comparisons that listeners to this podcast might be familiar with would be Aiken, also Eagle Springs, a family business, Eagle Springs, Right. These these are courses that were not necessarily designed by a professional architect, but they were designed by people who knew what they were doing, who had good ideas about architecture. And this might be the ideal model of affordable golf because, you know, we all love municipal golf, but municipal ownership comes with a lot of complexities that don't necessarily serve the golf course as well. There's always a shortage of funds. And the people who run the courses are often not free to do what they want to do 
to make the experience as good as possible. Well, they aren't they aren't necessarily incentivized to make a profit. Yeah, and so so there are a lot of problems with the municipal model, obviously, right? It's still great, but there are issues with it. This family-owned model is so much more appealing in so many ways. The problem becomes when, you know, the people who are running the business don't know what they're doing. But when they do know what they're doing, the results can just be wonderful. And if they're committed to the mission of affordability, which the owners of Pinecroft and, and Champion Hill are, then what you have is a unicorn. Yeah. And I think there's certain things like when I think about Aiken and here, the maintenance strategy is different at these places than it is at your municipal golf course. Like all these places, you know, that we just described Eagle Springs to there's like substantial width on the golf course, mm -hmm. like whether it's fairway grass or whether it's, you know, a single mow, there is width and there's limited trees. Like they know that they, that gets people around more, yeah. you know, you think about the maintenance of them though. And it's like, they all have this wide corridor and it's not perfect. They understand like if I'm going to maintain a golf course with a tiny crew, all of them have skeleton crews. This is the, the type of maintenance that is aspirational, tiny budget, tiny budgets, tiny crews, and they provide a great product versus like, rather than saying, Hey, you know, this superintendent at exclusive country club, that's got a multi-million dollar budget. They're just in completely different arenas. And these people like, you know, champion Hill and, and, um, Pinecroft, I, I got a message or somebody commented on Instagram. It's like, if they only cut the greens, and I replied, I said, well, you know, if they cut the greens more, then it wouldn't cost $45. And somebody else like said something I've never I've never heard somebody complain about people cutting their greens. And I said, well, I've heard a lot of people complain about price. And that's that's the thing is the magic of these places is providing a wonderful product at, at a very affordable price and being able to turn a profit, which they clearly do. Yeah. And and keeping the the maintenance minimal and then being able to manage golfers' expectations around that. Because that that comment you got about cutting the greens is a great example of something that gets said to golf course owners, golf course superintendents, and puts pressure on them to ramp up the maintenance budget and then ramp up the green fees, and then all of a sudden you're you're caught in this cycle of of expectations and rising costs that we're all familiar with in golf courses. Fortunately, it seems like the owners of Pinecroft and Champion Hill have a solid enough sense of self and security about what they're trying to do so that they can, you know, keep doing it, keep it affordable and and not get caught up in this rat race. That's the thing. It's, it is sensible. Like the clubhouses are super sensible. Yeah. Like at all of these facilities, like they're small. They have a grill. They don't have like a massive food, you know, uh, service. It's like you go in there and you pay and that's all you do. Like, that's all you need. You know, I think about a lot of like the the great public golf courses. And it's like the public golf courses that have the $15 million clubhouses are rarely the ones that have the great golf course. It's like off. Like you think about like Sweetens Cove's a perfect example. It was a trailer, you know, it is still is a trailer, right? You know, that's all you need. You just need, you know, it's just sensible because all the things that are luxurious end up just costing consumers. And if you're in Northern Michigan, it's hard to contend with Arcadia Bluffs if if your price is $110. You know, you're in that same strategy. People are going to look at it. It's like, oh, I could go look at Lake Michigan, whether or not your golf course is better or not. 
You know, that's just going to be the consumer reaction. Well, I'd stare at Lake Michigan all day. But at, you know, at $45, these places are just like, you're not going to find many better values in the entire country. Like, I think that's like where I, I would put these in terms of the value discussion is they're, you know, probably in the top 20 value courses in the entire country. And like, if if we're talking about like just a value trip in general, like you can drive like we've we've covered the three DeVries courses in, in Grand Rapids and those are three terrific golf courses. I think the most that you pay in any of those Grand Rapids is like 75 bucks. Then you drive up the coast a little bit. There's Manistee Golf Club, which is a Bendelo that's right on Lake Michigan. It's got like four holes right on Lake Michigan. Stunning property. You know, it it, it probably shouldn't be an 18 hole golf course at this point. It's it's kind of constricted because it, it was built in the early 1900s, and you know, maybe if it was a 12 hole course, it could be really spectacular. But then you got that golf course, and you know, it's worth checking out. And then you got if you play Arcadia South at, at twilight. And it stays light till 10 p.m. there in the summer. Yeah, I think the twilight right there is like 60 bucks. If it's like past four o'clock, you got plenty of time for for 18 holes. And then you've got these two courses, and it's like all together, you're you know, it's a couple hundred bucks. You could play like seven rounds of great golf. And then you go a little further, and Belvedere's up there. That's like up to 120 bucks now. But if you want like really affordable golf trip, and and meanwhile like. One of the drive up one of the most beautiful coasts in America, which is right along Lake Michigan. This is your trip. Yeah. Um, maybe we should introduce the guests that we have uh, for the rest of the episode. Uh, who, who are these guys? Yeah. So Lee Stone is the owner of these two golf courses. He was a, uh, a fruit farmer turned Christmas tree farmer. And then one day he decided to build a golf course because he, he was said he was getting old um, <laughs> and tired of, of farming Christmas trees. So this was his solution. It tells the story of that briefly. And then Jim Cole, the guy, uh, his superintendent from day one, the guy that helped him build the golf course, who had been in the superintendent industry, had been on some construction crews in, in northern Michigan, but at the time was a uh, was a home landscaper. He was just, you know, doing spraying people's yards. And I mean, <laughs> the fact that the guy, Jim Cole, was like, well, Crystal Downs is a good spot, and he bought... He, he tells the story, but he, he said Crystal Downs was a great golf course. So I bought Mackenzie's book and we followed the 13 principles. <laughs> I mean, it's just as simple as that. There's there's nothing too complicated about it. So uh, here are Jim Cole and Lee Stone talking about Champion Hill and Pinecroft in Michigan with Andy. Before you built Champion Hill and uh, Pinecroft, Pinecroft being the first golf course, what were you doing for work? My family, we were still farming. And the Pinecroft property, we had converted it from fruit over to Christmas trees. We were in the Christmas tree business for a lot of years, but we we decided we didn't want to keep doing that, getting too old. So we've got this 160 acres sitting here, and we didn't know what to do with it. It's the original farm. So when my grandpa started, we didn't want to sell it. We, you know, beautiful development property, and we could have. We could have sold it in a minute probably for development property, but we just wanted to keep it, but we didn't know what we were going to do with it. And uh, I might have told you this uh, before. I, my wife and kids back in the, I guess it would have been the middle 80s, early 80s, late 80s, 
we went down to Panama City Beach over uh, some vacation break during school, and the kids, we, we stayed at a KOA camp right on the main drag, and the kids and wife could walk across the street to the beach. And I would get up early, still dark, and I'd shoulder my bag. I, we had a, a motor, little motorhome, so I couldn't drive there, so I had to walk there. I walked, I don't know, three or four blocks down to uh, Signal Hill Golf Course. It's still there. At that time, and I don't know if it's true now, they didn't take tee times. You get down there and you stick your ball in a thing, and when your ball falls in a thing, then you go out. And... uh so there's a whole bunch of guys standing there in the dark. I thought, well, gee, if people will do this, maybe that's something we should think about. I, my dad and I didn't know anything about golf at all, except we played. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I came home, and I talked to my dad about it. And, oh, he said, I don't think so. or you know. But the more he thought about it, probably two or three weeks later, he said, you know, maybe we ought to look into that. And that's about the time I started talking to Jim. <laughs> so, Jim, what's your uh, what's your job here at uh, Champion Hill and Pinecroft? Well, I'm the golf course superintendent. I go back and forth between the two of them, and uh, just basically manage the turf grass. Did you do anything else for the courses? Did you or you you feel like you're selling yourself short here? No, I that's. <laughs> just about what i do <laughs> Not, nothing with construction you didn't help build them or well anything. yeah way back when <laughs> Yep. but as lee said we had well his name was craig carlson he was our shaper and i mean lee and i walked this property day after day after day uh with different routings and i don't know we probably had 10 or 15 routings before we figured on one yeah how did the whole process start so y- you came out with uh with lee he started talking to you you were at crystal mountain at the time uh i i had been at crystal mountain on their golf courses and uh but i i had gone into i started my own lawn spray business i was spraying lawns and landscaping at the time and when lee hired me we started out kind of slow and he said uh you keep doing what you're doing and come work on the golf course help with this golf course in the evening so we we took it a step at a time. Mm-hmm. So what what were your first impressions of the property uh, when you came out here? Well, as I said, I was uh, spraying lawns. I probably had three or four hundred lawns that I sprayed. He drove me up the hill, which was a two track back then, and uh, made the turn look west. And I knew that I had to be part of it. It just it had to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's obviously a stunning property overlooking Crystal Lake. Um, I, I'm curious how you guys went about, like, obviously, I think everybody, when they're any golfer, dreams about owning and building their own golf course. So oftentimes, amateur golf design isn't necessarily something that goes great. You guys, on the other hand, have built two really phenomenal public golf courses that are affordable and really fun and wonderful designs to play how did the process start as you know lee as you said i didn't know anything about golf except i played how did you guys start the process of building the golf course what were you know you you said you had 10 to 15 routings how did that come about well as jim said i brought him up to the property and 
and it kind of excited him a little bit. And so then I thought, well, maybe there's maybe we could do something. But we didn't. I think when I started, I didn't have, I couldn't see into the future. I thought we were just going to make a, another place for people to come up and play golf, maybe for twenty bucks, twenty five bucks, or something like that. It turned out better than that. So how did you just start building? Like you, you talked about the routing product. You guys were walking the, you guys walked the court or walk the property a lot. Like how did you start figuring out what whole, what, how you wanted to build the golf course? Well, we we bought a, a laser so we could shoot distances, and through the through Jim and and some of the stuff that we read. What what did you read? We read uh, McKenzie's book, and we studied his ten principles. I remember when uh, Lee and his dad, Gene, both approached me and we agreed to work together that uh, they both, they said they wanted to build a course that uh, was minimal. They wanted to move as little dirt as possible. They didn't necessarily want to build a course that was uh, high-end. They wanted to build a course that would require less fertilizer uh, requirements, less pesticide requirements, and and we've moved along those lines for 30 years now. I think we're probably one of the very few golf courses in Michigan that are mowing their fairways with rotary mowers at one inch, and the grass loves it, the people that come here love it. Mm-hmm. So we're, we've moved in that direction for 30 years. I mean, it it provides a it's it's a perfect playing surface. Like I think that's so many courses get caught up in conditioning, but like the fairways here, they're fine. They aren't like they're not super tight, but like you know, I think in in a way it helps the average player who sweeps it, who hits fairway woods, like they like it. And for a good player, like it's actually more challenging because you're always worried about whether the ball is going to jump or something out of a lie. So it's an interesting way to provide almost everybody always talks about shortening the gap between good players and average players. And that's like a perfect way to do it. It's just with, you know, a little bit, a little scruffier fairway makes it a little bit less predictable for the good player and a little bit easier for the average player. Yeah. And you know, the thing that we did here, instead of going with bent grass fairways, and having that tight turf situation where you can spin the ball and uh, hit down on the ball, and people just seem to like it. They they come here, they like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's cool. So talk about the routing. Like you you talked about walking the golf course a bunch beforehand, and you had ten, fifteen routings. How did you settle on holes? Like what was that like? Well, the one thing we did, Lee came had a topo map made, so. We relied on that at the beginning, and then it was just just walking and and uh, thinking about you know where the sun's going to be, where the wind's going to be, what uh, how that will affect things, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. We wanted to get from one level to the other level, maybe one of the easier ways, and so we that was part of the design too. So for walkers. Uh, it's a joy to walk. It's, it's so a, it's, walkable. It's a one-time-up walk, well, partially, all the way up one time. And and uh, we get a lot of walkers. We have a lot of walkers that play here. So you guys built this golf course, and it opens in 92. Is it uh, immediately, would it become pretty popular right off the bat, or did it grow over time? You know, what led you to building the second course? 
Well, it was popular. Uh, the first year we opened, we only had nine holes, and we were working on the the uh, back nine. And the first nine, the routing actually changed. Mm-hmm. You had the high holes, I bet, in the first nine, right? Well, we had some on the lower part and some on the high part, but the routing changed. And then after we had full construction, then we then we had our front and back nines. So the second year, the first year we were busy, but we were only nine holes, and, mm-hmm. and we had a good reception. Second year, with 18 holes, it was even better. The third year, we were running out of tee times, and we were we were on, what, eight-minute tee times at that time. So in kiddingly, I think, I took Jim up to Champion Hill. <laughs> Did you own we, that land then? Yes, yes. Was that another farm? Another farm, and... And uh, I, what kind of farm was this one? Uh, that was Christmas trees. Yeah. Champion Hill was Christmas yeah. trees. And we were, I kiddingly said to Jim, I said, maybe we ought to build another course. <laughs> and we thought about it, and, and we were turning people away here at Pinecroft. Of course, ga- golf was right in its heyday right mm-hmm. then. US, uh, what, USGA or National Golf Foundation, somebody was saying, oh, we need more golf courses. Well, they... They were a little bit wrong on that one, <laughs> but anyway, I think they said that they needed that America needed to build a golf course every day or yeah, something like yeah. that. So in '95, well, we we worked on seeing if it was going to be possible. Mm-hmm. We had we ended up buying a little bit of property, and and then in '95, that's when we bought the dozer. We bought a D8, D7, D6. Dozer, which Lee and Craig ran most of the time. But the day, I don't know if you remember this or not, the day uh, we took delivery of it, I think the three of us, maybe I think Hippie might have been there too. And so we had this new toy to play on. And, of course, we were having a few beers. Before the night was over, we all got to play on it. And we also decided that we were going to go with our designated driver, Hippie, uh, head for Augusta. We wanted to see Augusta. Uh-huh. We did not head there, but that was in our minds. <laughs> That's funny. How did you uh, learn how to use the dozer? Was it just like you get on the dozer and do you figure out like how it worked? Like how is there? What was the first green that was built? Is there something that you built out here that was a mistake that maybe turned into something really good? Well, there's enough mistakes probably that could yeah. have been done differently if we'd known. You know, as far as slope on greens, but and we made some corrections on them. But I think number one was our first hole. It's a great golf hole. And, I love uh, one. I don't know. We had to. We've made it. We've modified number nine and number uh, eleven over the years. Other than that, I guess it's pretty much the way it was, isn't it? A little tree removal. Apparently, not enough. <laughs> oh, just to point out a couple. There's, I'm not trying to take all the trees out of here. I just, I just pointed out like five of them. What, um, with like regards to, like building the features, how, how did you start to build the greens and stuff with the dozer? You get the dozer well, and then the, yeah, the the farm. We were in the farming business mm-hmm. at the time, and and the farm had a little dozer, and then we bought another one was a little bit bigger. And uh, and we just started pushing dirt for that green on number one. It was just taking forever. And then we hired somebody, a real operator, yeah, Craig, and uh, and things were a lot more efficient at that point. And then 
by the time we got done, we had some fairly big equipment here to, you know, not any bigger than a D6, but uh, we had a couple scrapers. We had to move a little dirt. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I don't know. We just, we would, I guess what you would say is, is we'd push dirt around until we thought it would work, and that's about where we stopped, right? Well, that's the way a lot of them, do, a lot of the best guys do it. They say they get in the dirt, and then they figure out what works, and they get off, and they say that looks pretty good. And that's how they build the greens, right? I don't know. That's, that's how we did say. it. That's <laughs> how what. That's how we did it. <laughs> so with uh, with Champion Hill, you guys had built here. You operated it here. Operated here for a while. What were things that when you went to build Champion Hill that you wanted to do that maybe you had learned from the years here? What were some of the different things from the construction and the just the golf course perspective? Well, we wanted to have a, a golf course that was completely different than Pinecroft. We didn't want to have two courses the same. And that property, being up in the highest part of the county, afforded uh, some pretty wide open. You had a feeling of openness up there, uh, whereas Pinecroft is tree-lined. And, and we made the greens bigger, and we still made a couple mistakes on our greens there. <laughs> Some people say, yeah. and uh, you know, if somebody says it's a bad green, that means it's probably a good green because you know. It's well, like as, as far as as far right? as cupping, we we've got a, at least one green that we're a little limited on where we can cup. So, but it's a well, we we call that a what a Highlands uh, links course, or it's got a lot of heathery stuff around it, and but you have a feeling of openness. You wide fairways and. Uh, there's no water except on the last hole, but the heather is not a good place to be. They just like to hammer that ball out there because they they're not. What do you? Want? I don't know how you say constricted. That. Yeah, there, there's nothing there. It's just wide open. You know, the thing that impresses me with both courses is like I feel like a lot of times if you if you're designing, you know, you're given a land like this with hills. A lot of times, people like to just go up or down. And what I've noticed about the two courses is how you guys weren't afraid to go along the sides of hills and around hills rather than just always straight up or straight down them. Uh, was there any thought with, with the routing process on how, you know, you guys weren't afraid to build a hole on the side of a hill and have a ball kick across a fairway? Well, I, I, I think for me, I, I mentioned before I was in the lawn spray business and one of my customers was uh, a member of Crystal Downs, and he'd take me there for several years, once a year as a guest, and that's what you see over there. And then you then you read his book, and that stuff just kind of sticks in your head. And then on top of that, you had Gene and Lee telling you that that's what they had in their head too. So it just all developed from there, I'd say. That's, I mean, I think one of the things that's it's so interesting is obviously like, I think one of the hardest skills in golf architecture is restraint. You know, people want to move dirt to make stuff flat, make it more fair, or, you know, want to, you know, build these like wild greens when sometimes some just subtle stuff is all that's needed. And this is the, the two of the course, both the courses are great examples of restraint. Like, you know, the, the, just the natural land itself in, in many places is more than enough for, for the strategy of the golf course. And it wasn't just restraint. It was probably lack of money. 
if if you don't mind me asking, you know, like when you guys built the golf course, you obviously already own the land. Like, how much did it? Do you do you know how much it cost to just build the golf course? Obviously, you did it all on your own. So, you know, if you're not comfortable answering that, then I don't know if I remember. I would say, didn't we build Pinecroft for about eight hundred thousand, or was it less than that? It might. I I don't remember. It it cost us more than that at Champion Hill because mm-hmm. we we had a lot more seeding and a lot more irrigation and i don't well i'll tell you what i can remember when i was in debt over a million dollars so <laughs> so it must cost something <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh so it what obviously covid being a course owner uh covid was like a you know at first really scary but then golf had a huge boom and it's carried through this year what's golf the turnaround been like as a you know independent golf owner which there aren't a lot of family-run golf courses like yourselves in America. I mean, most of them are run by, you know, management corporations or resorts. Like, what, what's the what's the uptick been like for you guys? Have you guys seen? Well, we're having our best year ever this year. Last year was our best year ever. <laughs> so I guess we've seen a lot of, a lot of new golfers, a lot of uh, ladies playing, and I think we're seeing a few more younger people playing. Do you – what – you know, do you think that uh, – it's a like is it a different type of golfer that you're seeing than usually than you used to or is it you know um you know outside of the women and you know have you noticed anything else we're in a tourist area summer tourist area and last year people were really limited what they could do Mm -hmm. and so golf was something that they started doing and i and i think people got interested in golf again and we're seeing those same people this year the uh, recreational golf not competitive golf we're seeing families and small family groups come in and play but when our when our uh, season is the warm season is done we're pretty much done in mm-hmm. fact we closed pinecroft around the first of october and that's really probably the prettiest time of the year but it's hard to maintain because of the leaves and so we shut it down a little early. Champion Hill, we don't have that problem. So we keep that open till the bitter end. Yeah, yeah. What um, what? How is has there been anything that's changed like with your guys' philosophy with golf over the you know now thirty years that you've been operating courses? I mean, we know from our businesses something you don't see very much of is courses like Champion Hill, links courses, wide courses. We have these two, and this one is constricted with trees. And uh, there's space, though. There's space, though, but there's more rounds. And say our membership, our membership prefers Champion Hill. They like Champion Hill because they can stand up there and hit that driver along and not being underneath a tree. And if you think about it, at least when I think about Northern Michigan, you have. Two courses down here, Arcadia Bluffs, that are Lynx courses. And in this part of Michigan, Champion Hill is the other one. There's probably others that I'm I'm not familiar with, but people like that style. Mm -hmm. That's what I see. Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's fun because I feel like here too is like it's very beginner friendly. Like there's plenty of space. There's no forced carries for the most part outside you know, there's one pond that you barely have to navigate, but like, you know, you, there's very little force carries. 
you know, you can run it into most greens here. I don't think there's a green. I can't, can't think of a green that you can't run it into here. Um, and then you've got to create variety. I mean, like you got short par threes, you got longer par threes. It's, uh, it's really a cool place. You guys did a wonderful job. And I, uh, Lee, I'd, I'd love to know if you ever had where you're like, what, why am I building this golf course? Well, I don't, I, I would say, uh, eight years after we built it, I had that feeling <laughs> Yeah, 2008, but building it, I don't, it, it seemed like, uh, there was quite a bit of interest in it in the community and i guess it once we got going on it it was go for it or you know bust <laughs> do, you, do you miss the christmas tree business not at all <laughs> it's uh but um hey I, I thank you guys for coming on and uh i urge everybody when you're up in northern michigan stop at one or both you guys got it what's the double deal is it what 50 60 bucks to play both in one day uh i don't work at the counter but yeah. i think it's 63 for the first round and then the the replay which can be done at either course yeah i think that's in the 30s 30s under 100 bucks 36 holes of uh really good golf so thank you guys and uh hoping for more great years hopefully next year is better than this year well we do too uh I, i would like to say that it's we've got a really good crew and uh and we're We've got, we're family. I think there's nine of us that are, that work on the golf course that are family. That's awesome. And, uh, and we've got the second generation just moving into higher positions and we hope it continues. We're, uh, we would hate to sell this farm or now it's a golf course, but yeah. we would hate to sell this property. So the, um, that I interviewed a guy named Mike Bolin who owned a course in, in Wisconsin and his family had owned it for since 1893. Pretty neat. You know, same family for, and they just sold, he just sold it to a, a cousin. So still technically family, yeah. which is, which is neat. And it's America. You just in general support your, uh, support your family owned businesses. Those are the, the lifeblood of, uh, of society, I think. Actually, my family is extended because I consider uh, my uh, partner here, Jim, as part of the family. And I mean, thirty <laughs> years together, thirty years together makes you family. Yeah, we've each got our own personality, and I guess we that makes us get along all right. <laughs> I'm lucky I work for Lee for these thirty years because people say that I can be short-tempered, and he's put up with it. <laughs> This episode was edited by Meg Atkins and by me, Garrett Morrison. I want to give a quick plug for our newsletter written by Will Knights. It will arrive in your inbox every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and it will tell you everything you need to know about the world of golf. Go to our website, thefriday.com, and you can subscribe to our free newsletter there. Check it out, and thanks for listening.